So I thought this morning I would just read a couple chapters from my dissertation. Is that okay with everyone? <laughs> no, I want to talk about this passage in John chapter 6 with Jesus walking on the water. Uh, miracles. It's a miracle passage. Miracles and signs and wonders that we see all throughout the gospel. What are we supposed to do with these stories? What are we supposed to do with this gospel text that presents us seemingly out of nowhere with a man, Jesus, walking on water? Some people try to explain these things away. Uh, The most fanciful explanation I've seen or explanation away is... uh, in an article published by three paleolimnologists, people who study old lakes, ancient lakes. And they made a case for a scientific explanation of this so-called miracle. They constructed what they call an analytical ice model to argue that at that time in Near Eastern history, a storm could have arisen suddenly and come down off the heights and it would have been possible that the cold air from that sudden storm would have frozen just a thin enough layer, just, thin en- or just thick enough to support the weight of a human body. And they say perhaps this phenomenon, what they call ice springs, is the origin of this story of Jesus walking on water. What do you think? One Bible scholar uh, explains this story away on linguistic grounds. He, He makes the argument that when it says here that Jesus was walking on the sea, that we should really translate it as walking beside the seashore. And in this rendition, the disciples are not far from the shore themselves. And there's Jesus all of a sudden just walking alongside the sea. And this scares them for some reason. And Jesus says, don't worry, it's just me. And he gets into the boat and they go to the other side of the lake. And it becomes a rather pedestrian story. No pun intended. Actually, pun intended. Um, Or or we can be more direct in explaining this away. The German New Testament scholar Rudolf Bultmann said that all the miracle stories in the New Testament, in the Bible, they're all part of an obsolete mythical worldview. He's writing in the 1940s and he says, It is impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. And so our task, he says, is to strip away all the miraculous mythological stuff so that we're left with just an understanding of human existence that the story means to communicate. With all these different modern attempts to explain away the miracles, what they all have in common is that they have already decided in advance what God can or cannot do. If there's a God, they reason, he cannot interfere in or with the world. That would be against the rules of the system we have created, rules designed precisely to keep him out. He can't do that. But it begs the question, if there is a God who created the world and gives it real meaning, and if he was incarnate in Jesus Christ, would there be anything to stop him from manifesting his sovereignty over nature? So if we don't explain this story away, then what is it about? Well, look at the second half of verse 17. There's this deeply significant sentence there. It says, It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. 
It was now dark. That is a very significant word. This little story about Jesus Christ walking on the water is not a parable. It is no myth. It is telling us what it looks like when light comes into darkness. John 1.5, the beginning of this gospel, says that the light has come into the darkness. The world is in a state of intellectual darkness, spiritual darkness, moral darkness, But in this story, here comes the eternal light, God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And this passage shows us what happens when we, in the midst of our darkness, have a genuine encounter with God, the light. And there are three things we can see about this encounter. I'd like to look at the text with you together now. Number one, this is a creative happening. This encounter with the light is an act of creation. It is radically unlike anything else. It brings you face to face with the almighty creator who transcends creation and the chaos of a fallen world. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. The disciples are out in the midst of this sea. It is dark and a storm has come suddenly off of the Golan Heights. And there, walking on this chaotic mess of a stormy sea on the water or on top of the water or something is someone. What's happening here? What's happening? The waters, the chaos, the darkness, this person hovering over it all. It all harkens back to the creation saga of Genesis chapter 1 where the text tells us that Before creation, there was just God and nothing else. Darkness, which isn't even a thing. It describes it this way. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then we know what happens next. By simply speaking, this God will bring creation into being. Let there be light. And there was light. And so now here are the disciples in a boat, in the dark, with chaos and nothingness threatening. But here also is someone with power over this threat. And if there's any doubt about who that someone is, he speaks. He makes a simple statement to them. And he doesn't just say any old thing. I know the ESV that you're looking at uh, reads... That Jesus said, it is I. But this is far too cautious of a translation. What this person who turns out to be Jesus Christ, what he says is, I am. This is the declaration and revelation of the full eternal divinity of the one speaking. It is the same voice that Moses heard in Exodus 3. As he stood face to face with that shrub that was burned up, saturated by fire, but not consumed. It is the name of the God who can only be defined by himself because he radically transcends all of his creation and yet is present to it. It is the name that when spoken into Moses and Israel's life, it allowed them to transcend their own situation of slavery It created them anew as a people. This is the type of creative encounter the disciples are having 
on this lake in Galilee. I know what some people are thinking, what does this have to do with me? This creative encounter with the light. Well, listen, those, cha- those waters of chaos, those black waters in Genesis, this threatening black storm in Galilee, this still really threatens today. Death, passing away into the deep, away from the land of the living, it stands at the door for every person as soon as they enter the world. Throughout life, people are grasping at meaning, trying to give their lives shape and purpose. But the decay of a world that is falling back towards chaos makes it an uphill battle. So individuals, families, societies all around the world are fighting this relational chaos that ever threatens to undo them. Truly we, the people of the world, navigate in the midst of this chaos, this storm. It's real. But what this text is telling us, as we think about the chaos and the storm of our lives in this fallen world, is that there is one who's walking in the midst of this storm, hovering over the waters even now. His name is the great I Am, and he burns through the shrubby human nature of Jesus of Nazareth, fully engulfing him, but without consuming him, united with him. This is a creative encounter. As we come into Advent next week, and we talk about the light that comes into the world, we are invited into a creative encounter with the God who has not only created us, but who is now working to redeem us, to recreate us. It's radically unlike anything else. Here's what happens as you encounter this creating God. It will disorient you. When he speaks his eternal identity into your life, if you really hear him, he shakes up your identity. It produces a frightening dislocation. And you're thinking, I thought you were going to bring us good news today. This is good news. Just wait. Look at the response of the disciples as they encounter this God hovering over the waters of chaos. Verse 19 tells us that they were frightened. They are far more afraid of being in the personal presence of the great I am than they are by the storm. And I think that tells us something. When this story is recorded in Matthew and Mark's Gospels, It even says that the disciples cried out they were so afraid. And Mark adds the statement that they were completely amazed, dumbfounded. And this fits with the biblical pattern where time and time again, when people encounter the living God, they are amazed and terrified. They often fall down as dead. Because an encounter with God is deeply disorienting. The light comes and it exposes you. And it lights things up in a way you've never seen before. And it, is, it will shake you. That's what's going on here. And if you look throughout this whole long chapter, chapter 6, don't do it now. You see some different responses to Jesus Christ. This is a really important chapter in John's gospel. 
you see these same disciples mildly rebuke him for his naivety and wanting to feed the crowds. You see the people thinking he's a prophet and that they can take him by force and make him a king so that he'll solve their problems. They come to him with a sense of entitlement. They question his authority. And ultimately, people abandon him in this long chapter of John chapter 6. But here at the center of the passage, in this instance, you see Jesus removing the veil of flesh from these disciples' eyes. Or better, maybe it's better to say he removes their fleshly blinders. And the disciples realize that he is the Lord. And they go to pieces before him. It's an emotionally shattering experience in which they are brought face to face with a God who is the self-existent, consuming fire and all-powerful, even over the waters of chaos and the threat of death. And they could never hope fully to understand or deserve or make any claim on him whatsoever. They can't manipulate him for their own aims. He sees right into the depths of their being. And they've lost all control in his presence. They're frightened. They're amazed. This is a disorienting encounter. This, Friends, this is what we need. We need this disorienting encounter with the living God. Research into the spiritual lives of people who call themselves Christians uh, shows that the faith of many today amounts to what one uh, person calls moralistic, therapeutic deism. Christian Smith, a sociologist, interviewed a large number of younger Christian adults about their spiritual lives. He found that many of them actually pray often. They pray about a lot of things. But their prayers, he said are almost entirely devoid of two things. Number one, repentance. And number two, awe or praise. He said that they pray to a distant God who, quote, is not demanding. He actually can't be because his job is to solve problems and make people feel good. There's nothing here to evoke wonder and admiration. How tragic. Right before us, is the truth of the sovereign and mighty, awe-inspiring God. And we rarely glimpse it. People are pursuing spirituality or religion or mindfulness as this way to find personal fulfillment. And the irony of it is that it's all empty because it is all at its core still about them. You and I need to be shaken from the complacency and the boredom and the puny little ideas of our moralistic, therapeutic deism. And a genuine encounter with the consuming fire, this all-encompassing light, will do that. It will shake you up. It produces repentance and awe-filled praise in the presence of the Almighty. Here's the last thing I see in this text. Is that God doesn't just disorient me with his presence. He reorients me. The consuming fire burns, but it doesn't burn me up. Genuine encounter with the living God saves and transforms. In our short passage, Jesus doesn't just terrify by revealing himself. 
He doesn't just speak the divine name that's beyond all understanding. In verse 20, he goes beyond merely saying, I am, but he also says, do not be afraid. The one at whom they are naturally and rightly terrified at speaks gently and graciously to them. And as they hear his gracious word of comfort, verse 21 says that they were willing to receive him. And he's received with gladness. And as he is, this inky, stormy sea fades into the background, calm settles. Jesus has not come to destroy them, not to leave them in terror, but to save them. See, God is this great and mighty and awesome I am. But he's come in the form of a servant, not to consume us with his majesty, but to allow himself to be consumed for us on the cross. Our awe before God shouldn't go away when we see this. It should actually be deepened all the more. The passage ends in verse 21, essentially saying the end. They made it to the other side. They were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. We might be thinking, oh, so the story is about receiving Jesus and him making everything easy and living happily ever after. But if you read in the gospel, you know that's not what happens for these disciples. They have encountered God in Jesus. It's shaken them up, reoriented them, but they will go on living in a world of trial and difficulty, still threatened by the dark chaos of sin and death. Yet something has changed for these disciples. Something has happened in them that they did not produce. Something that was more than a fleeting emotional experience. They are now bound to their Savior. So at the end of this chapter, when everyone turns from Jesus, all the crowds turn away, and Jesus asks them, do you want to leave too? And he say, they say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, this encounter has marked them. Even if everyone else sees him as a moral teacher or a heretic or a tool for personal fulfillment, they now know him to be the great I am around who all things revolve They know him to be the centerpiece of life, the main attraction. They can say it's no longer about who I am. It's about who, it's about the I am. See, this encounter with Jesus has not destroyed. It has disoriented. The light has exposed, but it has transformed. It is burned without burning up. And their lives are reoriented around Jesus. So this morning, I've been talking about this passage, Jesus walking on the water as a real encounter. I'm talking a lot about a real encounter. This passage is not a myth. It's not just a story. It's an account account of a real transformative encounter with the living God. But there's some tension here, and it runs throughout the entirety of chapter 6. On the one hand, I want you to notice that the disciples in this boat They didn't seek this out. They couldn't produce it. It simply came upon them entirely on God's initiative. 
Jesus says as much in verse 44 of chapter 6 when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. No one can really have an encounter with me as the living, saving Lord other than by an act of grace. Yet, at the same time as that's being said, the whole passage and the whole gospel is an invitation to believe and have life in Jesus' name. We're invited to eat him as the bread of life, to drink from him as the living water, to live in him as the light. We're told that whosoever believes will not perish, but will have eternal life. So what is it that's happening here? Are we entirely dependent on an encounter with God that's beyond our control? Or do we make a real decision to come into encounter with this God? And the answer to the question is yes. Jesus initiates and presents himself to us as the Almighty God, just as he initiates with these disciples on the lake. He speaks a disorienting and reorienting word to us. I am, do not be afraid. And we are enabled by that word to receive him, just as the disciples were made willing and able to receive him into the boat. And this tension has to remain. This tension between Christ's initiative and our reception Because this is not a system of ideas. This is about a mysterious personal encounter with here and now with the living God who transcends all our systems. It is about light coming into the realm of our darkness. And I've done the best I could this morning to declare this word to you. To set Christ before you. So is the great I am addressing you through Jesus? Are you being disoriented and reoriented by his presence? Are you moved to receive him into your life? This is all the work of the almighty God. And your work is to throw your whole self on him in a response of praise and worship. To fall before him in awe and adoration and call on him in earnest prayer. If you're not a Christian, but God has spoken and revealed himself to you through Jesus, if he's doing that, it is time for you to receive him. Take a step of faith that he himself is enabling you to make and call upon him. Recognize both his awesome terrifying power, but hear the soothing words that he speaks to you as he says, do not be afraid. And if you are a Christian, let's leave the moralistic therapeutic deism behind. Let's rekindle our relationship with the God who is near and living and sovereign over all. Let's encounter him today as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.